Welcome to the Dig In Travel Podcast, where travel and other digital professionals level up their marketing skills by listening to the top industry experts. And now here's your host, Istok Franco, founder of DigInTravel.com, your number one resource for travel, digital, e-commerce, and marketing. Hi, this is Istok, and you're listening to episode six of the Dig In Travel Podcast. It's really hard to be smart currently during this COVID-19 situation and one of the most difficult times our industry is facing. So before we start today, let me just wish everybody to stay safe, stay strong, wherever you are. But sometimes, sometimes such difficult times also make us to rethink and innovate. There is so much uncertainty currently, but what I know is that demand for travel will get back. Travel industry recovered and grew after every of the past crisis and people will travel again. However, we will probably need to do some things differently. In one of uh, the recent podcast interviews with Steven Shafiro, I heard him talking about how people associate change with words like pain, agony, sometimes even poison. So change is definitely hard. This is why I started with a special series of podcasts with the world's best leaders, interviews with people from companies like Accenture, McKinsey, Microsoft and Airbnb. What I'll try to do is, I'll try to get them, provide you the insights that could help you and our airline industry to change. Because to change, we need sometimes an outside view. And I think some of these insights will help you with looking at the future. First, I'll start with uh, Stefan Tonke from Harvard Business School. He's an author of the book called Experimentation Works, The Surprising Power of Business Experiments. And he'll talk about how experimentation and scientific approach is definitely the best way to innovate and succeed in the long run. Those of you who know me well, know that experimentation is one of my biggest passions. So you can imagine how I felt when I talked to Stefan. I was like a little kid in a candy store. I had a huge smile on my face during the whole interview. My apologies if I smiled or laughed too hard at some parts, but Stefan is uh, such an inter- entertaining speaker and most of all he has a wealth of knowledge and experience working with the world's biggest company. So enjoy the show and please stay safe. Hi, Stefan, and welcome to the Digging Trail podcast. Thanks for having me, Franco. Yeah, great to have you. As I was reading your book, and it's a great book, and I, I encourage uh, all the readers of uh, Digging Trail uh, blogs and uh, research and li- our listeners of this podcast to check uh, Stefan's book, Experimentation Works, uh, The Surprising Power of Business Experiment Experiments. So as I, as I was reading your book, Stefan, I was reading, uh, reading it as from my digital lenses. But the more the, I read your book, the more I saw it's not about digital experimentation, where the experimentation is really popular in the last couple of years. I saw a lot more about, uh, about this area of experimentation. So how would you say, who, who is your book for? Franco, my, my book is for everybody and so it's not just about uh, <laughs> online it's not 
it's it's also about offline brick and mortar. It's not just for B2C, it's also for B2B. Because the kinds of changes that we're seeing in this space uh, affect really every business. And uh, it affects them for a number of different reasons. First of all, uh, we see brick and mortar businesses now having increasingly, increasingly a digital presence. And so even parts of the businesses are moving digital now. And so they need to have that digital or online capability. But experimentation also works in uh, in brick and mortar settings. In fact, it's been used in brick and mortar settings for years. And so what this is really about, Franco, this is really about bringing the scientific method to management decision-making. And as you know, the scientific method is all about hypotheses. It's about experiments and so on. And having that kind of mentality or that mindset, you know, uh, and and in everything that a company does and all the way from the top down to sort of the mid-level to the bottom of an organization. One thing that also surprised me in your book is... When I started thinking about experimentation in this broader sense, so not from my typical digital perspective, is that this field is basically quite an old field. So if I'm not mistaken, the first or the, the biggest book about experimentation was written 14, 400 years ago, right? Well, we are at a very special time right now, Franco. In fact, uh, Francis Bacon, who is a, a British uh, philosopher and writer, uh, wrote uh, in 1620 the book Novum Organum. And what does Novum Organum mean? Well, Novum Organum was basically a book about a new instrument for building and organizing knowledge. And that instrument is called the scientific method. That's how we know it today. And he was he's considered to be the forefather of this method. Now, it evolved, of course, over time. And so again, exactly 400 years ago. So we are sort of a, at a special, in a special anniversary here. It's only taken us 400 years to get it into management. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but the power of this is really interesting. Of course, compared to uh, 400 years ago when Francis Bacon wrote about this, uh, today we have amazing tools available. And uh, so this mindset i mean there's been a lot of development sort of of course in the last you know 50 to 100 years about statistical methods you know at the time there were really no statistical methods around but the tools that you can use to do these kinds of things are now so powerful that they're affecting everything that they do now franco you know i wrote my my first book uh, in 2003 in 2003 that book was called experimentation matters and this book was about how new technologies such as modeling and simulation and all these kind of wonderful things are changing the way R&D and product development was being done. And uh, at the time, there was really no conversion optimization and things like that around. And what has changed now is that all of these methods, you know, the approaches that we know so well, more sort of in a product development setting and physical products, are now entering every facet of a business, and uh, and we have the you know we all know about A/B testing, you know conversion optimization, all these kinds of things. But it's much much broader than that. It is really about how to run an entire enterprise. What I'm thinking right now 
is, for example, the two of us, we came into this area of experimentation from two different angles. And I see a lot of paths with these new digital people who start ex exper uh, learning about how to optimize their websites, their online businesses, and they then they touch the area of A-B testing and experimentation. While, like you said, you, on the other hand, you are ex uh, analyzing, researching experimentation way before the digital world even started with this. Franco, I'm an, I'm an engineer. <laughs> yeah, me too, I, me too. I used, to, I used to do this. You know, I started 30 years ago with this stuff and uh, <laughs> in engineering. So I, I ran, in fact, this is my other anniversary. And now you can date me, you know, how old I am. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I ran my first engineering experiments. And I mean, really kind of designed experiments, not trial and error, but really rigorous experiments. Exactly 30 years ago in 1990, when I was working as an engineer in a, in a semiconductor factory. And, That's interesting, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My background, surprisingly, is engineering, more like IT engineer as well. But then I moved to marketing and I started analyzing these things. So my question, uh, Stefan, to you is, when you look at the organizations, is there a correct way how to start? Because some, I think, start with this bottom-up approach where there is this digital guy, conversion optimization guy somewhere in the basement and starts trying this, get some quick wins, and then try to uh, spread enthusiasm to the larger commercial teams or sometimes if they're successful even to the whole organization. While on the other hand, I think, like you said, your book should be for the CEOs that should see, look at experimentation strategically and say, we need to start with this program. Let's start top down. So which approach do you think works better, top down or this bottom up that I was talking initially about? Now, now Franco, I, I tell every, everyone who's thinking about this, I said, just get started. I mean, first of all, <laughs> get started, because if you have not started, you better do. Because if you don't do this, you're going to be at a major competitive disadvantage. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, in, in some businesses, you know, if you don't develop a capability quickly, you're going to be dead. And uh, so now how do I get started? So I think it has to happen both sort of at the top level, but also sort of at the middle level. I mean, you have to work it from both sides. Now, here's sort of what uh, organizations typically do. Uh, they start out with what I call, and, and, and the book describes in detail on, on, on giving different examples and so on, but it starts out with what I call a centralized kind of organization. And that is, they usually give sort of that capability to a small group of uh, maybe a digital marketing group or some sort of group within the company. And, and they're, they've become essentially a service provider to everybody else. So if you, Franco, if you sit somewhere else in a business unit, you want to run an experiment, you have to go to them. And they'll run the experiment for you. So this is the, like a centralized experimentation team that's Yeah, run. exactly, exactly. And the, the problem, I mean, it's, it's a good way to get started. The problem with that, of course, Franco, is that uh, it's difficult to scale because that central group becomes the bottleneck. And, and there's really no ownership sort of in the rest of the organization as well. So what then organizations can do, they can sort of say, okay, let's decentralize it. So the way this typically works is they will take sort of that group, those people uh, that, that know this well, and they'll send them perhaps into different businesses. And they said, you know, you know, anybody in the organization can now run an experiment and we'll provide people 
sort of uh, that will support you, kind of teach you what to do. And, and to do that, of course, you need to train people. I mean, they need to understand some basic statistics. And there's a lot of work to be done in order to get to that central form. The issue with that, though, is you can scale it more quickly. But then, uh, you know, it's so distributed that often there is no coordination between the different groups. So they may end up using different tools. They uh, may have different rates of progress. And there may be even some overlapping, right? Overlapping the things. Thing. I mean, all of that, uh, Franco. And, and so you see all that going on, but you, you start losing the coordination. And then what happens is often what they do is they move towards a more of a center of excellence model. And the idea of a center of excellence models, you still have a core group within an organization that owns the capability, but their job is really to advance capabilities and give some support to the different businesses who still can do these things on their own. And so it's kind of a mixed model. It's a mixed model between centralized and decentralized, but it kind of takes you know away some of you know the the, the disadvantages. And uh, of course, you know that requires an investment. And I think that's where senior leaders come in, and they have to rethink their roles as well in this approach. They need to they need to sort of understand you know how their own behavior, how their own sort of leadership model sort of affects how this is rolled out, and. And Franco, I see three different roles for senior leaders in this. Uh, the first role is they, they need to set a grand challenge that can be broken down into testable hypotheses. So their, their job is not to tell people which experiments to run. Their job is to give them a direction. So they don't just experiment willy-nilly, you know, like running around with chickens with heads cut off, you know. So they need to kind of give them a sense. For example you know, giving our customers the best possible uh, online experience uh, in the industry or something like that, and something that can be broken down to testable hypothesis. So that's the first. The second, Franco, is that their job is to put in place systems, resources, and the kinds of organizational designs that I just described to allow for large-scale experimentation to happen. And the third one is they also need to be a role model. You know, they have to live by the same rules as everyone else and subject subject their own ideas to tests. So it means you cannot have an ego. You may yeah. have to walk into a meeting and display intellectual humility and not be afraid to admit it. You know, like saying, I don't know, or I think I'm going to be wrong about this and have their own things subjected to these kinds of tests. Uh, you know, Francis Bacon once said, Franco, uh, again, in six, way way back then, he said, I love this quote, by the way, if a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. Uh, and that's, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah, That's a great quote. Going back to the free organizational models of how experimentation evolves, this is something that we see also in our airline research where we do this yearly conversion optimization research. So we have airlines who are at the beginning of the journey that needs this why, why experimentation of all, why to start, mm -hmm. uh, what value does it bring, and then start uh, with the first experiments with the first team. But lately, we see more and more airlines investing in these huge digital teams. Ryanair, for example, has free digital labs, uh, digital uh, labs around the Europe uh, there are 
airliners are calling themselves that they will become digital companies. And for them, the challenge is to scale. And this uh, uh, example that you t- uh, talked about, so the decentralized model, how it evolves in the decentralized model, but with this guiding unit, this is what I see where the big airlines that really want to compete and be similar to bookings.com, the Amazons want to achieve. And I see in your book, the example of booking, and I also followed the work of Stuart Frisbee, uh, some of his um uh, some of his uh, presentations, how they scale design, and he was talking about the similar thing. So they had this design principle and design function that basically was more of a teaching and a guideline for the 70 plus designers that work in different decentralized teams. Um, do you think this uh, approach or this evolution is the, the correct one for the bigger ones, the bigger airlines that want to follow bookings and the big players in the travel online industry? I, I think they need to follow models like booking uh, because uh, if, if they want to own, I mean, you know, there are many other platforms around like booking, but if the airline wants to be more active in terms of owning the customer relationship, they need to have a testing capability. And when I mean testing capability, Franco, you know, uh, I mean, I, I mean a lot of tests, uh, you know, booking runs tens of thousands of life experiments annually. I mean, that's a huge number. And I don't know what the exact number is, but my by my estimates, it's way over 30,000 a year. And you can now imagine sort of the dynamics behind this. Uh, it's an amazing kind of force. You know, something like 70, 75% of like the core team of booking in, you know, sitting around the Amsterdam areas and, and sort of the satellites are involved in running experiments every single day. So now, you know, trying to figure out what works and doesn't work isn't a guessing game anymore because you have this amazing firepower sort of that you can use every single day. Now, that creates a whole bunch of challenges, of course, for an organization. And that is assuming, I mean, if you take, you know, an airline and assume that they had the infrastructure to do this, you still need uh, an amazing number of hypotheses to be tested. Let's say, just for the sake of argument, you know that you could be running 10,000 experiments a year. That means that you need, or your people need to generate 10,000 hypotheses a year. Now, where do all these hypotheses come from? Well, they come from people, for sure. But where do these insights come from? Where do these ideas come from? So, what happens is, and this is really interesting, that these, in quotes, digital companies like the Bookings and many others, by the way, this is not just them, what they do is they still do all the traditional research that, uh, you know, many uh, non-digital companies do. You know, they do focus groups, they do usability labs, they have psychologists on staff, uh, they do all the kinds of things, quality research. But what they use it for is very different. They use it for generating hypotheses that are then tested through experiments versus companies that don't have a testing capability. And what they do then is they just use these insights and go directly to market. And uh, eventually, (laughs) you know, eventually every company will run an experiment. (laughs) And that is, you know, at some point they have to go to market and they will launch something 
they may not think of it as an experiment, but it is an experiment in some ways. If and it's they work or not. <laughs> and they will learn if something doesn't work. Except at this point, it'll be a very, very expensive lesson. And this is, I think you fails. have an example of an ex-Apple guy in your book who, who did exactly oh, that. Yeah. Right? It's a great story, <laughs> Franco. And this is a, a great story, how, how also our own experience and intuitions can mislead us. So, so this is a guy named Ron Johnson, an Apple executive. And he was a very famous guy in the retail space because he and Steve Jobs together created the Apple Store. Uh, you know, clearly the most successful retail concept in the last uh, decade or so. And uh, hugely successful. So J.C. Penney, you know, a big American retailer, comes along and sees this. And they're thinking, hey, you know, if we bring Ron Johnson on board and making the CEO, you know, we want him to do what he did for Apple. And so they do that and they give him a huge incentive package. He comes on board as the CEO. And he gets started right away. You know, he implements all the kinds of things that work so well for Apple. You know, they eliminate coupons, clearance racks. You know, they fill stores with branded boutiques, use technology. They eliminate cashiers and so on and so on. All the kinds of things that you see there. 17 months later, sales had dramatically dropped at JCPenney. Losses are building up and Johnson was fired. So what happened? Well, if you listen to them, if you listen to people on the board, one of the big problems is that they didn't test. And they were in a hurry. They were in a hurry. They assumed that all the things that worked for the Apple Store would assume in a JCPenney retail environment. But of course, it didn't. And I listened to a talk uh, by Ron Johnson when he now looks back about his experience. And you know what, Franco, what he calls it? He calls, and he, by the way, he's not an arrogant person. I mean, when you listen to him, he seems, comes across as actually quite modest. He calls it situational arrogance. And that mm-hmm. is, you know, we get so confident about our beliefs, what we think sort of works in, in a particular context that we don't question it anymore. And that's the trap that a lot of, I think, a lot of managers fall into. And I also see this in much smaller scale in the digital world. There is a lot of articles, success studies, this works for booking, this works for Airbnb, and people just copy paste and think they should work for their business without doing the research and proper validation and hypothesis and testing. Absolutely. Even booking learned that, you know, when they initially started to launch things, you know, on their landing pages, they took the kinds of things, you know, that work so well in the travel industry and uh, and they, they figured, you know, it works in a brochure. So why not replicate that online? And of course, when they ran it online, things didn't work at all. And so what happens to work in a brochure when someone actually walks into a physical travel office doesn't work when you actually put it into a digital experience. Now, how do you know whether something works or not? Well, you got to run the experiments. No, true, true. And I want to come back to uh, your thoughts before about the scale. So if you want to run 10,000 experiments, you need (laughs) 10,000 hypotheses and things like that. So 
I think there are different elements and you also write them in detail in your book about how you do this at scale. Mm -hmm. So for one, you okay, we talked about we need to have capabilities, we need to have the team, the people, then you need to have the proper organization that you talked about. And we will talk a little bit later about one of the most important parts, the cultural part. But I want to also see one thing that I see also with airlines. Airlines are on on this legacy, or a lot of traditional airlines are on on this legacy technology, you know. And I see the technology and the platforms are often limiting them how many experiments they can run because they're just so inflexible. So what I see in my research is that the best ones, the, the best at experimentation are the ones that they build their own experimentation technology and it's directly embedded in their booking platforms. And I saw some examples, I think it was from Microsoft and some other in your book where they see this huge gap in experimentation when they build their own experimentation platforms. Is, is this correct? Yes. So you have to look at this historically, Franco. And um, so a lot of the big players that do this at scale, like you know the Amazons and the Microsofts and the Bookings and even Netflix and Google and all these companies that do this at large scale, when they started out, there were really no third parties, reasonable third party solutions available. So they had really no choice but to build their own platforms. And, uh, and some companies have invested an amazing amount of resources in it. I mean, if you just look at, at Microsoft, uh, you know, they have a team there of, I think now 90 plus people and all they do is maintain infrastructure. A lot of companies cannot afford to have, you know, such large efforts just to, just to kind of build infrastructure, run infrastructure and all that. The good news is, is there are now uh, an increasing number of, uh, third-party platforms available uh, that include some of these elements that some of these large companies have. And there are some of them around, you know, Optimizely being one of them. And uh, that's encouraging, right? So that means if you want to get started, you know, and that often scares the hell out of people, right? They're saying, oh my God, you know, we have to now put a 50 people tech team or 20 people tech team on this, uh, you know, that you can just invest in, in a third-party solution. And it is kind of interesting because I saw the same evolution, Franco, in the engineering world, you know, something like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, where initially, you know, when all these tools took off, companies built their own. But then after some time, they realized that just maintaining these tools and improving them would be just way too much effort because, you know, these companies were not IT companies and they eventually, you know, moved over to third party solutions. I think that's going to happen sort of in this space at some point as well, that as the third-party solutions are getting better and better, you know, companies will just choose that path. Yeah, no, that's definitely one of the challenges. Like you said, for the ones that want to get started, that's a no-brainer. Select a third-party tool and start running and grow with the tool as you grow with the processes, knowledge and the exactly. scale. Uh, for the bigger ones, currently, it is a bit of a challenge because if you want to do more complex experiments, this is something where the third-party tools still uh, limit you a little bit. They do limit you for sure. But, 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 I, but I, to keep in mind, usually, what I find is that the real limit, the real break is not the tool. 
and we'll get no, to no, this in a few minutes you know yeah no true true um Okay, one one other thing that you mentioned before with this 10,000, let's say, experiments, 10,000 uh, hypothesis. Uh, what you write in a book is that companies that do experimentation, they don't see these huge uh, wins or huge uh, uh, huge uh, results for huge uh, uplist, but it's more like uh, it comes with a quantity and a lot of small incremental, uh, uh, let's say, wins. Um, but on the other hand, I also see people experimentation people that would say you need to test big you know big things big changes will bring you big results mm -hmm. what is your view on this well there, there are different kinds of experiments and that's why you know i'm always reluctant just to sort of call them a b tests or conversion optimization and because i think experimentation is much bigger you know just roughly you can think about sort of experiments sort of at two different levels at one level you have the kinds of optimization experiments uh, that you study yourself, right, and that you see. And the idea here is to to do, uh, you know, like landing pages and things like that, do sort of that conversion optimization. And typically what we do there is we do very small experiments and, and we make very small changes and we could, can do that because our sample sizes are very large. Yeah, a lot and of it allows us also to do cause and effect learning. Right? We change just one variable, we randomize, and we can be very almost kind of with laser precision kind of say which of the variable changes causes what to happen. That's one kind of, one class of experiments, and many experiments are like that. But I also see other types of experiments, which I call kind of exploration or discovery type of experiments. Now, there you may change many variables at the same time. The, the, uh, Intent there isn't always to get precise cause and effect because when you're changing many variables at the same time, you can't really pin it down on one variable. The idea here is perhaps to maybe explore, to get some sense of directionality that allows you kind of to say, okay, you know, if we completely, for example, have our landing page and we make our complete language, we make it all <laughs> yellow or blue or whatever, something big. And it kind of gives us some sense of how customers are likely to respond to it. And then we can kind of kick into optimization experiments again and then refine and fine-tune some of these things. So I think I we need to think more broadly about experimentation than just about fine-tuning and fine optimization. Having said that, though, Franco, that even small <laughs> experiments can have big changes in terms of no, revenue. That's true. Yeah. No, 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 that's true, especially for the large airlines that have tens of millions of uh, users on their website each month. Absolutely. That's true. There's one example, I don't know, it's in my book, you know, Microsoft Bing ran, a, you know, an employee ran a test, a simple test, only took a couple of days to run, to, to, to make a design, the change, the software change. And uh, much to their surprise, it ended up lifting revenue by more than $100 million a year. Just one small change. Again, because a lot of traffic, you know, and uh, so the digital world, you know, you can scale things instantly. You can expose these changes to a lot of people and, and, and that it makes it very, very powerful. I call it high velocity incrementalism, Franco, because mm -hmm. we want to make many small changes fast and then the cumulative impact can be huge. No, it's yeah, and often it's the difference between linear and exponential growth. Absolutely. So if you want yep. to really grow exponentially, this is exactly what you're talking about. I want to touch now in the second part of our talk one even more important topic for me. 
Because what I often see when we start, let's say, conversion optimization, and I call it from the trenches, this bottom-up approach, we started with digital teams. We teach them how to do measure, how to do analytics, how to do user research, how to test. And then we first ran first experimentation and we see these results. And what we see, what happens is you find out this, we call it first usability fails, you know, first mistakes that are very evident because if you didn't test and didn't do user research, you don't see it and you get results. But the more, the more you evolve this conversion optimization, the more it touches the real user problems and the more closer to the product you get. And this is where I see the real value of this approach when it becomes what you are writing basically about the real company experimentation. Mm-hmm. Let's say like a true business process optimization or business optimization through experimentation. But here I think is where airlines struggle. Uh, and I wanted to pick your brains about this because for me, airlines are like two different worlds. So we have like these digital teams that have a lot of traffic are trying to catch up with all this digital stuff and try to do experimentation. But on the other hand, the 100-year history of airline planning is like we plan one times per year, you know. one <laughs> There are two seasons, winter and summer, but basically all new routes, new scale, bigger scale is tested in the summer season. So basically the whole industry and the whole management has this one times per year experiment mindset, if I can say it so. Mm-hmm. So how would you, or how could we convince, or how we could implement this experimentation where it has much bigger impact on the routes, on the on the seat capacity, sure. even on the airfare types? How so do you look of, at this? So a number of different thoughts, Franco, on this. And, and I'm just uh, looking and seeing what's happening out there, not just sort of the airlines. And so... Of course, so there's a lot of emphasis right now on conversion optimization, you know, websites and things like that. And uh, but what's what's happening now, which is really interesting, because we're going in full circles here, and this again, where our mutual engineering experience actually comes handy, <laughs> is uh, I think companies are now discovering that this is so powerful on sort of on the user interfaces. Why not actually use it on the products as well? You know, why not start using experiments on at the product level, not just basically on the channel? And uh, and this is essentially where experimentation came from, where it originated. To, you know, this is this is what I did, you know, some 15, 20 years ago, or even 30 years ago when I ran my first experiments. I ran it on process and we did it on product as well. I think that's the real power. I think the airlines need to realize that if you want to leverage the full power of this, you have to go beyond just thinking about conversions on your websites. Yeah. You have to start thinking about products. Can you actually experiment sort of with the products that you offer to your customers? So that's at one level. The second, I think, uh, question, your question was about the cadence. You know, how often should we do this? Well, you know, we know from from software development and how software development has changed in the last few years is that it's fundamentally different in an agile sort of approach to this, where we iterate and iterate and iterate, there's no beginning and no end anymore. And it's a continuous process. You know, it's now called DevOps. Uh, You know, I think software, software has recognized this, that it's not really the way we manage software projects is fundamentally different than the way we're used to. We're basically now continuously doing, there's no end to this. And, and we have to do it fast. 
we have to, again, high velocity, we have to iterate very quickly. And I think that's the world that, we, that, that we're heading towards. And uh, I think airlines are not going to be an exception here. And maybe the mentality that they have comes from capacity planning because they have very expensive capital equipment that they need to allocate and all that. Yeah, and and perhaps true. that kind of holds them back a little bit. No, I think it's also the whole mindset. You know, it's the industry is very uh, regulated. Uh, you know, I did, did an interview and this is maybe we can talk, uh, uh, talk about the cultural part now. I did an interview with the head of a strategy of uh, Eurowings Digital, which is Eurowings is a low cost uh, airline uh, of Lufthansa in Germany group. And they created a new company within the Eurowings group, or Eurowings Digital, because they said it's just a different mindset in the digital world, in the experimentation. And we couldn't came through in the uh, our main company because where we were explaining about MVPs, we should do MVPs and things like that. Mm. He said, you know, nobody wants to fly on an MVP plane. <laughs> and that's yeah. why, to me, that was a great example of the different cultural part. Um, and But I think what you're talking about is we should still try these approaches, of course, in a regulated way, in a safe way. Also in the airline, in the offline world, where the, 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 the real money uh, is also lost or made. And I think in your book, you had one, one very good example uh, in this offline experimentation uh, with this when one company tested the, the opening hours uh, of a store, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And so just a few thoughts on this. I want to explain to you the example. I think right now the airlines are facing a real test because of uh, COVID-19. And imagine now you had this capability where you could, I mean, things are changing every single day. Imagine you had this agile capability where you could kind of go out and have the same flexibility and you can kind of basically redo it like in an agile software development approach. Just imagine how powerful that would be if you had that capability. And going back to the examples, you know, going beyond digital now, going into in more physical spaces where this can be used as well, by the way, just the constraints are a little different, is uh, Kohl's, a uh, big US retailer. And uh, they faced an interesting uh, question. And that is, you know, they had, uh, they did an analysis with the help, I think, of some consultants, they did an analysis. And the analysis showed that they could save millions of dollars if they opened their stores one hour later and they have many many stores in the u.s now that calculation that analysis can be done it's very easy i think any first year mba student can do that you just run through the numbers and you figure out what the cost is but that's not the real question the real question for the leadership then is not how much money they can save but if they changed the stores to opening one hour later, what would be the impact on revenue? Because uh, that's what that's where the big unknown is. And how do they know? Well, the only way to find out is to open the stores an hour later. But that could be a really expensive proposition because we don't know usually how consumers behave. And, uh, you know, so, so how do you do this? Well, they ended up running uh, disciplined experiments in a sample of their stores with a lot of rigor, with the support of software. And, uh, and then, then basically the results told them that the effect on revenue would be very small. And that then gave them the courage 
to be bold and make a change like this. Because if you make a change like this without running experiments, I think you're playing the lottery here. And, and we remember from Ron Johnson, you know, uh, kind of what he did, running it without experiments. And so, so that's, so, so it allows you in some ways, experiments allow you to be more innovative. It gives you the courage to be bold in your innovation as well, because you have evidence to back you up. No, uh, true. And I see the examples that you see with the store. I see back from my airlines days, a lot of time is like, where we were thinking about should we add a frequency to one route or should we change the the schedule? Mm-hmm. And if you could experiment or apply some of the experimentation principles, and I think some of the airlines, to be honest, do, uh, then is like you said, you make much better decisions and uh, on the long run, it really matters. Absolutely. And the, the, the funny thing where you want, um, mentioned with this COVID-19 situation, and it's uh, really terrible for our industry. But if you think it's, and I was really thinking it uh, when I read uh, your book this week and all this thing was happening, it's like experimentation happening in front of our eyes because we have different countries with different approach, approaches, all these different data sets. And then when people start comparing, they say, look, what these guys did here worked much better than what we are doing here. So mm-hmm. I think it's like life showcase for experimentation in this tough times. The only, the only challenge you have right now, and that's why you have to think it through, Franco, is you need a control. Yeah, because otherwise true. it's just an observational study. That means, oh, they did this in their country and let's do it. But we don't actually know whether it works in our context, just like the retail example, unless you have a control. So when you're facing these kinds of almost, quotes, natural experiments here, you need to be very careful about kind of what you learned from it. And you need to really think about what kinds of controls could you use. Sometimes there is a natural control as well when you're sort of thinking through it. And that's why it's important to have uh, people on staff who know how to do this and who know kind of what the issues are, who know sort of some of the analytical challenges that you face when you sort of see these things happening around you. And they can help you then to make intelligent decisions. And so, again, capabilities is really what matters here. Yeah, no, that's true. Like you said, on much smaller and less significant scale, this is what I see as one of the main challenges of uh, experimentation is where you start running first experimentation and you don't have capabilities, analytics, statistic capabilities to identify correct controlled Absolutely. groups, sample sizes, calculating st- statistical significance, uh, things like that. And for the airlines, it's huge, right? I mean, imagine imagine an airline, you know, could, through the help of experiments, can maybe change their load factors by, I don't know, 2% or 3%. I mean, the impact is huge. You know, if you've got, you know, tens of thousands of flights or, or even more, uh, you know, changing even small changes in load factors have a huge impact on their on their revenue and bottom line. Yeah, and it's it's top down. It starts with the traffic, with acquisition costs, because a lot of traffic yep. is paid, so higher conversion means lower acquisition costs. And then, as you said, it reflects down to the operational things like load factor, which the impact is huge. And this is, I think, one of the examples why booking can invest in this because they have proven much higher industry conversion rates and then they can invest this back in the business. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So maybe, uh, Stefan, to to end maybe this interview, you analyze uh, a lot of different companies, a lot of different people. Uh, 
what do you think, uh, what is a good profile of a person to work in experimentation? Because we talked, for example, about the engineering uh, side and engineering background, sure. which makes you naturally curious. But a lot of times I talk to people who work in experimentation, they said you need to be these uh, entrepreneurial types. So you need to be willing to take risks, to see bigger picture. What do you think is a good profile for a person to work in experimentation? So, Fungo, that's a really great question. And I think it ties it back, directly back to the cultural piece again, right? Because what kinds of people do you want to have in your culture that do this sort of thing? And I, I've identified... Uh, seven elements you know uh, in a culture and uh, that are all there's a whole chapter basically on culture and that talks about people and things like that as well but let me give you some examples of the kinds of people that you need to do this uh, first of all uh, you need curious people because you know these are the kinds of people that will see failures not as costly mistakes but as opportunities for learning uh, so you need to hire for these kinds of people. You need to also cultivate them, you know, so they don't come on board and they're very curious. And then, you know, once they're in an organization, they're not allowed to be curious anymore. So curiosity is, uh, is, is really important. And, you know, one, one manager once told me is that the way he screens for curious people in an interview, he, he just counts the number of questions they ask him during the interview. <laughs> It's a very simple KPI, he said. <laughs> if, the, if the answer, if they ask, if it's zero, right, then chances are they're probably not very curious. And so the first one. Then the second one, I think you need to, you need people who understand that data needs to trump opinions. And so, you know, if in doubt, you know, you should follow the data, you know, even when it clashes with sort of the opinions. And, you know, we, we as people, we tend to happily accept what we call good results, you know, that confirm what our biases are. But when we get a bad result, we thoroughly investigate it. <laughs> and, we, you know, because we don't seem to believe it and so forth. So people need to understand that. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no room for opinions. Of course, opinions and intuition, all these things are important to write down a hypothesis but when it comes to making decisions and results, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we do really understand the data. Now, again, it doesn't mean that we blindly follow the data. There may be strategic reasons why we don't do things. But let's please look at the data and understand sort of the power of the data. Uh, I think uh, third example, and there are many more of these things, I think we need people who are ethically sensitive, you know, because when you're running experiments, you, have, you also have an ethical responsibility. You know, you should never run experiments that harm people. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, it's not so clear cut, you know, what's ethical and what's not ethical. And so you need to create an environment where people discuss this and they challenge each other about sort of the ethics of what they're trying to do. And, and when you get it wrong, you know, the backlash can be severe, as we learned in Facebook and, and other companies and, and so having someone who has an ethical sensitivity and, and, and also cultivating sort of that ethical sensitivity, I think, is key in an organization. So that would be just a few examples, uh, Franco. There's a lot more to this, of course. Uh, again, it's uh, chapter four in the book. Uh, and uh, and I, I welcome, you know, anybody who has any questions but. You know, there's there's a lot in the book about how to do this and what it what kind of organization you need, many examples. You know, what kind of transformation you have to go through and so forth. Yeah. 
No, thank you, Stefan. These were great examples and also, I think, great insights for all of us. As I said, I think it's it's crucial that uh, all businesses, also airline, not, not only airline, but everybody else, realize that experimentation and this scientific approach uh, to growth is the right one. And uh, yeah, I encourage, as I did at the beginning, everybody, all the listeners, all my readers, uh, to learn more about you, about the book. Uh, find the book on Amazon. Uh, leave a five-star review once you read it. I did today. So, no, really, it was uh, it was for me, as I said, as a huge enthusiast in this field. I was really, uh, really pleasantly surprised when I finished it because I learned a lot of new things. Thank you very um, much, Franco. Very generous of you. Yeah. Tell me at the end, uh, Stefan, apart from the book, uh, where else can people uh, learn more about you? Well, of course, they want to learn about my work. Uh, easy way is always to come uh, to my webpage of Harvard Business School. Uh, the way to find it is either you go HBS and then my last name, T-H-O-M-K-E, and you'll end up basically on, on, on my page at the school. Uh, you can also use www.thom, as in Mary, K-E, Tomkey.com. And that will take you to my Harvard Business School webpage as well. And on there, I list all my publications. You know, I write about this stuff all the time. There are many articles on this as well, uh, case studies and things like that. And uh, they can also email me. Uh, it's T, just the letter T at HBS, like Harvard Business School dot edu. Uh, they can send a connect request uh, on LinkedIn. But what I do Great. ask people is to send a message along with it uh, just to uh, tell me sort of why they heard me. So I make a connection uh, since I get a lot of requests and from people right. that I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I, I want them to kind of see kind of where, where we met. You know, I, I'd like to have yeah. people in my network that have actually met me, either virtually met me or physically met me. I, I would say that's a common courtesy. It should be a common courtesy, although on LinkedIn it's just not. And no, it's a great it's a great advice how to yeah. to reach out to great and smart people like you are. And I will uh, include all the links that you mentioned in the podcast notes and also in the article that will support this uh, chat. So I make sure that everybody will be able to find you, Stefan. Thank you so much, Franco. Thank you again for the chat and. Uh, uh, a lot of uh, fun with experimentation going forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by digintravel.com. Digintravel is your number one resource when it comes to airline and travel digital marketing and e-commerce. Visit digintravel.com to find the latest digital trends and white papers with in-depth airline digital benchmarks.